Amen. Good morning. You guys doing okay today? You guys excited for Pentecost? We're going we're gonna to primarily live this morning in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we'll slide over to uh, Acts chapter 2 as the morning goes on. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we just celebrate this morning the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of your church. Lord, we are so thankful that you haven't left us to our own devices, our own intellects, our own strength, but you said, by my spirit, saith the Lord. Father, as we look at your word, we ask this morning that you would just release upon us a fresh filling of the Holy Ghost, that all of our lives would be empowered by the sweetness of the Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. Church, if you just tell them, say, I love you, Jesus. You're so good. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Again, we're going to be in Acts 1-8 primarily. I thought this week about the idea of Pentecost. We're obviously a people who celebrate the power of the Spirit and love uh, Pentecost. I found myself beginning to reflect on the concepts of revival or awakening. We talk so much about revival and awakening. And um, historically, there were two great awakenings we talk about in our nation. And so sometimes you'll find people praying for a, a third great awakening Amen. that the Spirit would shake our region again. I, I thought this okay week today? about quite a, uh, a variety of people. One, I grew up in Pensacola, Amen. Florida in the nineties. So, um, Brownsville, the Brownsville revival began in 1994, 1995 on father's day. And, um, the Brownsville revival worldwide was a thing. People flew from all over the world to come and hear the gospel preached. And, uh, growing up in that city, even as a kid, I would, there was just always a buzz. Revival was a buzz. And, um, I learned over the years to really love and appreciate Brownsville. A lot of people will talk about the crazy that happened at Brownsville. And the truth be told, you can't get that many people in any room without some crazy happening. Um, and so that's just the nature of people. People are weird. Okay. Um, but I love Steve Hill. I loved his preaching. He preached a message of repentance. But Brownsville's known for having services every night for five or six years. And so sometimes when we use revival, people go straight to the concept of Brownsville, that there's this constant service happening. I, th- I thought this week about Lonnie Frisbee. Do you guys remember Lonnie Frisbee in the, in the 70s was one of the catalysts for the Jesus movement? Um, hippie strange hippie. He had some kind of encounter in a canyon. There's debate about whether or not he was on LSD on this trip. Um, but it has an encounter with the Lord in a canyon and gets hooked up. You remember with Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa and, um, like thousands of people just coming to know the Lord. And I was laying in bed and, and thinking about William Seymour and this African-American man leading a multi-ethnic prayer movement at the turn of the 20th century in Azusa Street in California. And just this beautiful uh, man who led with humility. And you guys know I'm a fan of Jonathan Edwards. I think Jonathan Edwards is the greatest thinker that our continent has ever known. And some call him the last Puritan. And he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And many souls, you know, come to know Jesus. And as I, I thought this week and laid in bed and thought and prayed and thought, I started to think about the contrast between these individuals. You have Lonnie Frisbee with his LSD trips leading thousands of people to know Jesus and Jonathan Edwards, the last Puritan. Um, quite a distinction. And then you think about John Wesley and the holiness movement and 
Charles Finney, for instance, uh, on a total separate spectrum theologically than Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, a lot of people critique his theology, but he would preach and people would just weep. And Charles Finney is really where the idea of the altar call came into place, where people started coming to the altar to receive Jesus and to respond. And so I'm thinking about all of this and thinking as a people who talk about revival and we're praying that our region, that's part of our vision, right? That our region has an encounter with the glory of the Lord. Um, what do we mean and what are we trying to say? And I think it's important that we acknowledge that we are not trying to say that we should all look at the life of Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee had some character issues in his life. Um, but we're, we're not saying that, hey, the Jesus movement was incredible. Therefore, everyone should take their shoes off and grow their hair out and be weird again. Like, wear your clothes, please. That would be awesome. I'm, I'm not trying to say Jonathan Edwards was the smartest man that America has ever seen. If we want revival, you better read more. You need to study more. Um, we probably should study more, but that's, that's not what we're trying to say. I'm not trying to say that Brownsville had such an incredible message of repentance. We should have services every night of the week. Or we need to do what they did in Toronto. Or we need to go back to Wesley and Whitfield. And if we really want the power of the Spirit, we should preach outside. That'll work. I stink at no CMs around here. I ain't doing that. Somebody say, preach, boy. Let's... They're straight from hell, those no seams. And, and when we think about, okay, difference in personality. Lonnie Frisbee and Jonathan Edwards, whoo, spectrum there. Difference in practice and pragmatics and theology. You think about even, even John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were ministering at the same time, friends, on total different spectrums theologically. And so it's, it's not even like we're saying we're trying to embody or replicate a specific style, a specific style of worship, or even a necessarily a theological framework. The common denominator between these people and the move of the Spirit in their time, the awakenings, was this. They were dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Some were Methodist, Wesleyan in their thinking, and some were Calvinist. Some were hippies with no shoes. Some were Puritans very buttoned up. All of those things are very much secondary. What matters first is that we pursue and live by the power of the Holy Ghost. Our preaching of the gospel, it cannot be merely an exchange of intellectual ideas. I'm not giving you a lecture this morning. Right? Like our, our prayer meetings, they're not just like lobbying up generic phrases that we repeat like our our discipleship our bible studies it's not as if we're just we're just sitting around a cup of coffee to hear uh to fellowship and and that's all that's happening everything we do must center around the power of the holy spirit the church was birthed the day the holy spirit was poured out in power the church the true church of god must lean and glean from the from the spirit of the Lord. Now someone turn off that quack and duck, whatever that is. It's a fraud, well, bless God. <laughs> All right, Acts one eight. You guys ready? Let's look at it. This is Jesus right before the ascension. He says this But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. There are three concepts that come to text in this short verse of scripture, verses of scripture. And I, and I want to take them backwards. Um, I want to take them backwards because I want to, okay? That's the way this works because I have the microphone. I get to make the rules. Um, so we're going to work backwards. But the, the, the last concept that showed up in the scripture, and the first thing I want to address is this, the ascension of Christ Jesus to the right hand of the Father. So many times we miss the way that the ascension is crucially connected with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the commission of the church. And I want to take five minutes. Oh, shoot. I, I feel like I could take four weeks to talk about the ascension right now. It's so in me. But I want to take five minutes to try to uh, really wrap our minds around what happened at the ascension. So the disciples stand and they watch Jesus rise on a cloud to heaven. This is a fulfillment of of prophecy, particularly from Daniel chapter 7. It was incredibly important to the early church. It was incredibly important to the New Testament writers. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. Now this is Daniel in a prophetic vision, and he says this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The early church thought so much about this. So Daniel said, again, I saw in a night vision, one like a son of man. He ascended on the clouds of heaven and was presented before the ancient of days. That would be the father and the father, the ancient of days gave him a throne dominion. That's everlasting that all of the nations, all languages, every tribe, every people group should worship him and belong to him. And his dominion would be again, everlasting. It would have no end. And so at the ascension of Christ Jesus, from a theological perspective, we find the coronation of his kingship, of his lordship. When he rose to the Father on the clouds of heaven, the scripture says he sat down at the right hand of God and he became the rightful king of heaven and all of earth. All the nations belong to him rightfully, legally, spiritually, forever, eternally. All people groups belong to Christ Jesus. He is now officially king of kings and Lord of lords. He's given dominion, glory, kingdom, and all peoples. Now, we tend to think of Daniel chapter 7, uh, or we tend to think of the idea of Jesus coming on the clouds. Our minds immediately go to the return of Christ. But in the New Testament, so many times, uh, most of the time when we talk about Jesus coming on the clouds, the New Testament is not referring to Jesus 
coming, returning to earth on the clouds. The New Testament is referring to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus coming to heaven on the clouds. And so, for instance, in Mark 14, this is Jesus before the high priest, before his crucifixion. It says this, Mark 14, 61 through 64. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of the Man, the Son of Man, where? Seated at the right hand of power, on his throne in glory, and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You heard this blasphemy. When Jesus says, coming with the clouds of heaven, he is not referring to his second coming. He is referring to the ascension, when he would come with the clouds of heaven to the throne room of God and be seated at the right hand of the Most High as the rightful and legal king of the universe. The ascension carries with it so many theological ideas and implications that for some reason we don't meditate much Upon the ascension, when Christ ascended on the clouds of the heaven, uh, the disciples are standing there, Acts chapter 1. It's been 40 days since Jesus' resurrection. He's been walking the earth with them. They're standing there and they watch him on the clouds ascend to the Father. They are witnessing the, um, the, the beginning phases of Jesus' coronation ceremony. Well, he will sit down at the right hand of God, and there is a new age beginning in this hour. It's the age of Christ Jesus' kingdom. When you think of Psalm 110, we talked about Psalm 110 before. It's the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. What does that tell us? It was meaningful to the early church. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is the psalmist prophesying? The the day when Christ Jesus ascends to heaven and the Father, the Lord says to my Lord, the Father says to the Son, sit down, be seated at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until the nations become your inheritance. So Christ Jesus today, from a biblical and theological perspective, is seated at the right hand of God until the nations become his inheritance and all those enemies of Christ become his footstool. And so we live in this age in which Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand as the rightful king. And before he ascends, he says to the church, you will be my witnesses. And now we fumble into the concepts of like, we're ambassadors of Christ. The rightful king is seated on the throne of heaven and you've been commissioned, I've been commissioned to be his witnesses. Now, the second thing we stumble into is witness. The concept of witness. The word here is martus. It's literally where we get the word martyr. It means uh, to, to be an individual who confesses or faithfully testifies to what we have seen, heard, or experienced. I can't, I can't press this hard enough. One of the crucial concepts of being a witness is that you have actually experienced the risen Christ. Is that you have tasted and seen the goodness of God. 
The idea of being his witness is that we have personal encounters, intimate knowledge of Jesus himself by the power of the Spirit. Like faithful witnesses are not people who have heard intellectual ideas that they're going to regurgitate. Faithful witnesses are people who have encountered the risen Christ in the secret place of prayer, who have met with God in the, in the holy of holies, and who step out into the nations and say, this is what I have seen. This is what I have known. This is what I have experienced. Now, the New Testament concept of witness, I, golly, we miss this, especially in Acts and Luke. Luke thinks of witness in a legal sense. So think, for instance, of Stephen, right? Stephen's going to be the first martyr. Again, that Greek word is the same word for witness. Stephen, um, in, in, in Acts chapter 7, remember Stephen is, the, is a deacon. He's a man full of grace and truth and power. And he's, he's just a deacon. He's just a, 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 a servant helping serve tables, feeding the widows. But he is so powerful. And, and the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are frustrated with Stephen's wisdom, his ability to refute them, and the power of the Spirit on his life. And so Stephen becomes the first martyr. It's wonderful to think that in the church, the, the first martyr, the first to really lay his life down for Christ was a servant. And Stephen, on the day when he is martyred, he preaches like a long message, like just sharing the gospel. Then he says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. So again, the context is he's standing before... Um, it, it, Stephen's trial is not legal. Um, this is uh, in the sense that he's not standing before an official court, but he's he is on trial, and so the context is Stephen standing on trial, and now he's going to be a witness. He's going to faithfully witness. Acts seven verse fifty four. When he heard when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, "Behold, I see the heavens open." And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen is witnessing before his trial. And he sees the heavens opened. And who does he see? The Son of Man, Daniel 7. And he's standing at the right hand of God. Commentators and scholars love this. Because everywhere else, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But the idea is if, this, if Jesus from his throne, the, the moment the first martyr gets ready to give his life, the idea is that Jesus stood up to welcome Stephen from his throne. But Stephen's saying, I see him at the right hand of God standing. And the pattern continues. Paul is going to witness before Agrippa. And Paul is going to witness before Festus. And Paul is going to witness in Jewish synagogues. And Paul is going to witness in the streets of Ephesus. And everywhere Paul witnesses, when you start to watch him before Agrippa or before Festus, he's going to say, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisee of Pharisees, man. I was sent to persecute Christians at Damascus. And on my way... He spoke to me. I saw him. I encountered him. And so we find the idea of witness is getting honest, faithful testimony to the way in which Jesus has radically transformed our lives. Our call and commission is not to necessarily be the smartest. Our call and commission is not to necessarily be the most creative or the most innovative or to be the most charismatic. Our call and commission is to faithfully say what God has done in and through us.
The blind man says, all I know is I was blind and now I see. To witness. We're told that we'll bear witness, the disciples are told they'll bear witness from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, that is, that's an onion there. Jerusalem's where they are. Um, Judea would be the region where they are. Samaria is the region north of them and the ends of the earth. They're to kind of systematically bear witness to the ends of the earth because all nations, tribes, and tongues belong rightfully to Jesus. Why do they carry this gospel witness to the ends of the earth? Because Jesus is the rightful king of the heavens and the earth. And he has commissioned them, commanded them to witness to every tribe, to every people group. Finally, three things. We see the ascension of Christ Jesus, which we don't think enough about. Second, we see this concept that the church should witness Again, have encounters, should know Christ experientially, intellectually, yes, but experientially, intimately, and we should open our mouths and tell the truth. That's the concept of witnessing, right? It's telling the truth. Peter was not a good witness on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. Why? Because when they say, aren't you one of his disciples? He lied. He said, I don't know him. But Peter, once filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, he witnesses very faithfully. And, and, and that's where we turn. The idea that Jesus has ascended and is now the rightful king. He has purchased the nations with his own blood. He has conquered every demonic power with his resurrection. Colossians says that he put on display, he publicly embarrassed, shamed every demonic power. The concept there being... That we as witnesses who carry this gospel to the corners of the earth are declaring even to the demonic realm, you are no longer master. You've been conquered and triumphed. Jesus, he commissioned us to be witnesses to his resurrection power and to declare the ascension of Christ, that he is the rightful king, And then the concept is that we won't be witnesses that are left to our own devices, but there will be a stamp of authority upon the life of the church. There will be a stamp, a seal. And sometimes Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit this way. He's a seal upon our lives. The church would not just witness by our own strength, but she would witness by the power of the Holy Ghost. That the church would preach the gospel and the sick would be healed. That the church would preach the gospel and signs and wonders would follow. That demons would be driven out. That the church would preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit would be in her midst. Jesus says, don't even worry about what you're going to say when they what? Drag you before rulers, witnessing. Don't even worry about what you're going to say. In that hour, it will be given to you. The church, again, is not supposed to be the most innovative group of of people across the universe. The church should be the most dependent group of people upon the power of the Holy Spirit. He's innovative enough. Okay. He's, he's power. He's, he's got enough creativity in the room. And so Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, until the ends of the earth, and then Christ Jesus ascended on the clouds of heaven. You will receive power. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Ten days after the ascension, the disciples were gathered together in the upper room to pray on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is another term for what's called in the Old Testament the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks would be called a week of weeks, meaning seven weeks. I'm going to teach you guys math because I'm that smart, okay? Seven weeks is 49 days, and penty means 50, okay? And so Pentecost is the 50th day. They're gathered together on the 50th day, the Feast of Weeks. And this feast, Pentecost, was always about the wheat harvest. Okay, catch the spiritual significance. Jesus calling his harvest a great ingathering where the wheat and the chaff will be separated. So on the day that they celebrate the wheat harvest, the spirit begins to rush through the room like the, with a sound of mighty rushing wind. And imagine what begins to rest upon their heads. Tongues of fire. And they began to, the scripture literally says, they began to praise and sing and preach in other languages. Languages that they don't know by their natural mind. But they are preaching the gospel to a multitude of people, to many people groups. Why? Because all the people groups belong to Jesus. And they're preaching the gospel with fiery tongues that have rested upon their heads. Why fiery tongues? Because their witness is going to be baptized in the power of the Spirit. Their tongues are going to be shaken by the fire of God's Spirit. They are going to witness in power. Now, anyone who does mission work, if you feel called, if God calls you today to some tribe in the Amazon, the first thing you're going to say to God is, I speak English, God. That's the most natural problem to run into language barriers and and learning a language i don't know if you know this but like you can't do it in a day take some serious time and so you can imagine the disciples standing before jesus in acts one before the ascension and jesus says power will come upon you to be my witnesses in jerusalem and they're good man we know jerusalem pretty well judea all right we got that samaria yes we got eh. to the ends of the earth we we speak aramaic jesus so maybe you should call some gentiles um, right? Like, there's a, there's a problem here. We don't have the ability to preach the gospel to the Greeks, necessarily. Some of them did. We don't have the ability to preach the gospel to the barbarians. When we get into the Asian country, we can't preach the gospel to them. And the Spirit falls upon the church, the disciples in the upper room. Tongues of fire rest upon them. And Jesus is saying very clearly, all you need is the Holy Spirit. And all of the challenges will be conquered by the power of the Spirit. All you need to do, church, is rest and be filled with, be baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will carry this gospel to the ends of the earth. And the harvest will be brought in. 
and the nations will look and see the beauty of Jesus. The nations will come and be, be gathered into the kingdom of our God. The nations, every ethnicity, every people group, every language, every color, they will belong to Jesus because he is their rightful king. And every demonic power will flee. And every principality will be trampled upon. The heel of Jesus is on the neck of the enemy. And you are called to witness, to testify to what you have known of Christ Jesus. But not by your own strength. To testify in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm sure there's some more things that I wanted to say to you, but that seems good enough. (laughs) I, we say this, okay, guys, we say this. We say we are a church who believes in the power of the Spirit. We say we're, we're a church who believes in the gifts of the Spirit. We say we're a church who, who leans on the Spirit. We pray, right? Like we gather every Wednesday night to pray and to ask God for His leadership and His guidance. We, we say we're a people of the Spirit, but we've got to, church, we have got to make sure that our, our, our words there are not ideology, but they're really heart, conviction, and passion. We've got to be a people of the Spirit. We have to be dependent upon the Spirit. We, there are times where we need programs. Okay, There are times where we need organization. There are times where we need to, to talk about structure. There are also times to throw it all out in the dumpster and just say, Holy Ghost, come. Okay, And we want to be a church whose priority is to lean on the power of the Spirit. We don't want to be a church that leads with our intellect, our charisma, our gifting, or our innovative abilities. We want to know Him. And sometimes, church, that means stopping, praying, fasting, listening, asking Holy Spirit, how are you leading us? Where are you leading us? Sometimes that's saying, like Moses, we're not going anywhere, God, until you come. Lord, sometimes that's saying, Lord, I, more than money, more than numbers, more than buildings, more than better jobs or popularity, more than, any, more than food, what we've got to have is your presence and power in our midst. And we're not going anywhere, Lord, until we're sure we have it. And if we're not that kind of church, we, we need to fix it quick. You guys hear me? Uh, so this morning, if, if you'd stand with me, I want to pray. I want to take, you know, two minutes to pray into that. And I want to ask us, to, uh, ask the Lord to make us a people of the Spirit. And then we'll transition into some altar time here. So come on, I want you to pray with me. Maybe open your hands. Father, in Jesus' name, we want to repent this morning. If in any way we've grieved your Spirit, we've run ahead of your Spirit. Lord, we want to repent this morning if in any way we quench your Spirit. And we want to ask for years to come, Lord, for the entirety and longevity of our natural lives and for the future of this church. This church would always be a people who lean fully on the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, forgive us if we've run ahead. Forgive us when we forget you. And we ask today, Lord, for a mighty rushing wind to fill these people to fill our homes, to fill this congregation. We ask, Lord, for tongues of fire to fall upon us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would be faithful witnesses, stamped with the power of the Spirit. Lord, would you do it in our day? Lord, we're not trying to mimic 
the Jesus movement. We're not trying to mimic Brownsville or Charles Wesley or we're not mimicking anyone's style or strategy, but we do want the same spirit. We do want you, Holy Spirit, to be in our midst in the way you were in their midst. Whatever it looks like, whatever it sounds like, however it manifests, or that's totally your call. We just say, Lord, like Moses, if you're not with us, we're not going. We need you. We need you. We need you. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. 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 amen.